0: So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, maybe get, 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry the Henry the Eighth, and Victoria with your hosts
0: Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. We identified 18 monarchs that we thought stood out for the rest from the rest, and we are now doing the playoffs where we decide which one of those 18 deserves to be crowned the Rex Factor champion. Mm-hmm. We had the first round in which nine of those 18 were knocked out. Yes, and we're now into the semi-finals, three groups of three, from which the top one will go through to a final of three. The grand final voting is decided by votes for me. Mm-hmm,
1: from me.
0: Ali, and from you the public so remember to go to rexfactor.wordpress.com for links to the survey and more information about the playoffs yeah and remember to follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook and subscribe to us on iTunes and our YouTube channel
1: yes we've got a couple of little lovely videos more videos there, and
0: more huh? to come yeah. so semi-final A today and it's uh, it's quite a one for personalities mm. Henry II Henry VIII and Queen Victoria well I paid have you're playing pretty fast and loose with the word personality, then. Remember, yeah. you're not sighing well, and groaning well, at uh, the.
1: Maybe she'll win.
0: Maybe she will. Yeah. You've got to consider that possibility because <laughs> she's still in it. Uh. So, what we're going to do with this one, similar to the playoff episodes we've had before, but this one's going to be a bit more biography heavy. So, previously, we focused a bit more on the events and kind of the key stuff that they did. Because we had to fit six monarchs into each mm. episode. This one's going to be a bit more about them as people, their character, their personalities and what mm. sets them apart. But still, obviously, covering the key stuff. Yes. So, first up to the pass, Henry II. And
1: now he's our big hitter, isn't he? He's our... He was our
0: top seed, surprisingly. Mm. You only put him fourth in uh, in your voting.
1: Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, it was a tough group, that one.
0: Henry's born in 1133, which was 881 years ago. That's a long time ago. Came to the throne in 1154 when he was 21 years old. The right age. Exactly. And the context for his reign was, of course, the anarchy. So his grandfather, Henry I, had been very successful, but his only legitimate male son died, only left his daughter, Matilda. Yeah. Matilda wasn't really supported at court by Henry, was unpopular marriage to Geoffrey of Anjou, and her cousin, Stephen of Blois, Nick the throne while she wasn't there. Yes. But she didn't take it lying down, and so they had a 19-year pretty much civil war, which is all a bit grim.
1: Yes, nasty, nasty. Uh,
0: but Henry II, he got for, involved for the first time in 1147, when he was just 14. Oh, yeah,
1: he went over, didn't he? He
0: went over, he ran out of money, and of course Stephen, being such a nice guy, paid him his money to help him go oh, home. Yeah,
1: there you go, on your way, here's a fat lunch. Fatty <laughs> <you>, mother. <laughs> uh, but in
0: 1153, he was recognised by Stephen as his heir when Stephen's son Eustace died. So in 1154, Henry becomes king. Right, nice. But he's facing challenges. Uh, 19 years of civil war, financial difficulties, castles that all the nobles own that are completely impenetrable, powerful earls, border territories in Scotland and Wales have been lost, and royal control is really, really diminished. Mm. Thankfully, however, Henry is a rather different character to Stephen. He certainly is a description from Gerald of Wales, of Henry II. A man of reddish, freckled complexion, with a large, round head, grey eyes that glowed fiercely and grew bloodshot in anger, a fiery countenance and a harsh, cracked voice. His neck was poked forward slightly from his shoulders, his chest was broad and square, his arms strong and powerful. His body was stocky, with a pronounced tendency towards fatness, due to nature rather than self-indulgence, which he tempered with exercise. Sounds like a
1: more like a bull. Well, yes, he's a bit of a bull, and
0: uh, he's always on the move. He's very much a force of nature, and again, Gerald, lovely name, Gerald of Wales. Mm.
1: He's always um, affiliated with Beer, Castle in Wales, so ah, if you're in Wales, check it out. It's lovely. It's the most beautiful picturesque spot. Where where is that? It's in Pembrokeshire.
0: Um, he describes Henry as being addicted to hunting beyond measure. At crack of dawn, he was off on horseback, traversing wastelands, penetrating forests and climbing the mountain tops. And so he passed his restless days. At evening on his return, he was rarely seen to sit down, either before or after supper. Despite such exertions, he would wear out the whole court by remaining on his feet.
1: What was he doing?
0: Dancing? Or he's actress? just doing things all the time. He's just relentless doing stuff. Doing stuff.
1: He's a very busy bee, isn't That's he? That's what
0: he does. And he's actually quite a likable character, We didn't quite really mm. get this in the playoff episode, but he's got um, a, more of a personality than other monarchs, maybe in okay. this time period. Peter of Blois, one of his uh, ministers, said that if the king had promised to remain in a place for that day, and especially if he had announced his intention publicly by the mouth of a herald, he is sure to upset all the arrangements by departing early in the morning. If, on the other hand, the king orders an early start, he is certain to change his mind, and you can take it for granted that he will sleep until midday.
1: Why did he do that? Just, uh,
0: just playing about. That's just annoying. Um, I hardly dare say it, but I believe that in truth he took a delight in seeing what a fix he put us in. It was obvious that he was an impossible master, and yet an excellent one. who knew how to make men work for him. Probably because he could kill him. He probably could. <laughs> but he has got a bit of a sense of humour. Yeah. And then um, there was one uh, chap, Hugh Bishop of Lincoln, offended Henry, and they were sort of all sat down at camp. Henry was mm. in a fury, as we see. He does have a bit of a temper on him. Henry.
1: As, as is their way, these wonder about the chaps, isn't
0: he? Indeed, uh, a sense for a needle uh, and thread, so he could stitch a bandage for a wound on his finger. Uh, to which uh, Hugh of Lincoln said, how you resemble your cousins at Falaise," which is a reference to the fact that William the Conqueror was also known as William the Bastard. Mm. Allegedly, his mother was a tanner's daughter yeah. at fillets, oh, in Falaise, i.e. stitching. Oh, right. Gear. OK, yeah, with you. So Henry is saying, oh, how you resemble your uh, foster <laughs> cousin. Oh, that's
1: nice. He had a Falaise gap. Oh, on his finger. Ooh!
0: So all the other nobles sort of sit back and think, Crikey, he's, he's bad yeah, enough yeah. mood as it is. But Henry roars with laughter, explains the joke to some of the other people, and then they all get on famously again. And he cuts a head off? But he doesn't cut his head off. So that's the thing, he's got a good sense of humor. No, he plays jokes on mm. his ministers, but he also can take a joke as well, mm. which is quite nice. He's also a very intelligent man. He preferred to go to his chambers to read rather than partake in uh, tournaments. He enjoys debating with the scholars, had a very good memory understood all the languages of his realm, but he only spoke French and uh, Latin. And he was also very humble as a king. He doesn't have any interest in pomp or ceremony, so he wears quite casual, uh, ordinary clothes, ate a very sparing diet, and said to be quite approachable whenever people came and petitioned him about things, he'd listen patiently. So, you Mm. know, he's quite a a sympathetic character. Okay, right, so he's not...
1: He sounds terrifying, though, but people would go and...
0: Well, yeah, I think he's terrifying if he if he gets cross. Mm. But otherwise, he's approachable, he's quite relaxed and quite okay. casual. He's not... If you think of, sort of Richard the Lionheart, who, went, even when he was imprisoned, was basically standing as if he was on his own throne, telling everybody how much better he was than them. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he becomes king and he does really well. He reestablished royal control after the Anarchy, destroyed Newcastles or brought them under his control. And he shows a genuine interest in improving the lives of his subjects. He takes great interest in laws and reforms and particularly the start of what we call English common law. Yes, I like this bit. And he marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes, of course he does. Incredible power couple. This is She was the wife of Louis the Seventh of France, but she didn't really like the stuffy French court and divorced Louis only to marry Henry about... Uh, just a few weeks later mm. Scandal no, well, Exactly uh, Henry's ten years younger than her as well mm, Scandal um, mm. But they're an incredible couple Henry at this stage he's young, ambitious he's just become king of mm. England Eleanor is this incredible woman mm. It's probably the ultimate royal couple in that sense of Yeah, all the monarchs, yeah Pendulina or. Very nice Something
1: like <laughs> that They were, not they?
0: He's got quite a rival with Louis Seventh of France, uh, not least stealing his wife.
1: Eleanor, not Hendelina. it's not Eleanor. Angelina, that's what I'm going for. Dope.
0: Um, besides stealing his wife, he also expands his territories in France, um, so he actually, with all of these territories, in basically west uh, and central France, or the left of, left France, of France, and France, and the middle. A bit. Yeah, nice. um, so he actually technically owns more of France than the King of France.
1: Yeah, that's a weird situation you can get into in medieval world, isn't yeah. it?
0: Um, hugely powerful though, but sympathetic as Henry is, he does have a bit of a temper on him. No. And it can land him in trouble. Um, there was one stage we talked about previously where when somebody praised the King of Scotland, Henry fell out of his bed, screaming around, tearing up his cover and stuffing the mattress into his mouth because he was so cross. <laughs> what?
1: what a, that's quite an overreaction. Though. That
0: is a bit of an overreaction. So it's quite easy to see that when he shouts about something that you might imagine that mm. he wants somebody killed yeah so when he has a conflict with the Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Beckett
1: yeah it all goes well I don't know they solve it solve it and...
0: well they yeah. they saw Beckett had gone into exile when they had a dispute over the church reforms when Beckett came back excommunicated three people as soon as he came home why uh, just messing
1: yeah Oh, that's, that's going to stir up trouble.
0: Henry had a bit of a shout at dinner and how unhappy he was and four drunken knights who overheard him went to Canterbury Cathedral and hacked Thomas Beckett to death at the altar of the cathedral.
1: Quite a rational response, I'd say. Very mm-hmm. rational, very yes. understandable. Yeah. We've all been there.
0: Oh, you tell me about know, the amount of times I've
1: had priests hacked to death. You but don't know, the next morning, mm-hmm.
0: people were a bit peeved. morning after. Exactly. Um... Scandalised the whole of Christendom. Henry really under threat um, of excommunication, of invasion, of all sorts of things. Becket was canonised and Henry had to do penance. So apparently, 80 Canterbury monks gave him the rod. Oh, yes. By yeah. giving him a hit, literally, with a rod.
1: And this is when he's dressed in sackcloth and all that jazz. Yeah. Which, to be fair, being a humble dress, yeah, he may we well have been wearing anyway. <laughs> quite snappy. Yeah. Good
0: that you were dressed down for the occasion. <laughs> what? what? Um, and he actually uses it to his favour, so he visits Beckett's Shrine about 10 or 13 times and really promotes it as oh, right. a destination, so he actually benefits from it. So when he spends an all-night vigil there during a rebellion and then the King of Scotland got captured, mm. he was like, Ah, see, Beckett has forgiven me.
1: Oh, yeah. nice. Well done.
0: So before William III invented PR, Henry II is... Invented uh, PR. Invented yeah. PR. His big problem, though, is his actual family. Yeah, he had
1: problems eh? He
0: had problems. The sons, uh, the young Henry, who was actually crowned joint king during Henry II's reign. Yeah. But died before Henry son ever got the throne. Richard the Lionheart, of course. Geoffrey and King John. Oh, him. All grasping for land. Henry trying to sort his territories out in such a way that will allow them mm-hmm. to get what they want. Um, He had a painting at Windsor Castle of a parent eagle being attacked by its four children. Really? Yeah, which is a not so subtle, pointed reference. Eleanor of Aquitaine, things turn a bit sour. Initially, a very fruitful marriage, lots of children, Mm. but tempestuous characters. Mm. They fall out, particularly when Henry has a rather public affair with a woman called Rosamond Clifford. Right. And Eleanor encourages her children to rebel against their father. Which they do in 1173-74, to seven four, the Great Revolt. The young Henry is upset at the lack of power that he's got, despite being effectively joint king. So in alliance with the kings of France, uh, king of Scotland, various sort of counts and dukes uh, in France, as well as Richard the Lionheart and Geoffrey, they all rebel against Henry. But he sees it all off, mm-hmm. defeats them, brings them all back in. And forgives them. Well, he does actually. He forgives. He's very forgiving them. Apart from Eleanor of Aquitaine, who he imprisons, <laughs> he actually effectively just lets them all go back as they were.
1: Well, she didn't actually rebel. She fostered it. She but, did.
0: But. You know, well, not... clearly she was the dangerous one. Mm.
1: <laughs> she was. She was so cool. She was. Mm.
0: Um, they do start to die, sadly. 1183, the young Henry was planning another rebellion with Geoffrey, um, but died of dysentery. Um, and Geoffrey died in 1186, an accident in a tournament. He loses two of his oh,
1: sons. Ah, now my scandal sniffer says
0: oh. scandal. wow. Well, well, dropping like flies in. Mm. But actually, Henry, as we said, he does forgive. So when his son, the mm. young Henry, was dying, Henry II sent him a ring as a sign of forgiveness.
1: Did he get it or did you just get it? He did, and he was
0: wearing it when he died. Okay. Class me right. to him. Well, after he died, Henry II said, He has cost me much, but I wish he lived to cost me more. Oh, that's sweet. Philip Augustus uh, is the cunning new French king. Uh, initially friends with Geoffrey, but he then tries to drive a wedge between Henry and Richard the Lionheart, Richard being the next in mm-hmm. line. And 1189, um, with Richard wanting to go on the Crusades, Henry is delaying things, and Richard thinks, oh, he's just going to give the throne to John while I'm away. Mm-hmm. So Richard and Philip rebel, take Henry by surprise, probably already dying from a bleeding ulcer, tired of all this relentless
1: moving, moving. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, Forced to submit to terms, collapses into a fever on hearing that even John had abandoned him, mm. and dies in 1189-56. Not a very good end. Anyway, that's the life and times and character of Henry II. Okay. Next up, Henry VIII. Oh no, here we go. We all know this guy. Yeah. Born in 1491, which was 523 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he comes to the throne in 1509, when he's 17. It's a bit young. He is quite young. He's just on the verge of turning mm-hmm. 18, though, yeah. so he doesn't really have a minority. He grew up in a very female-orientated household, so with his mother, sisters, grandmother, Margaret Beaufort. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to have shaped his attitude, so he's spoilt, rather rotten, and he has a rather romantic view of women. That's good. It is. But, but it's a bit unusual at yeah, the time, so he's unusual. not so... Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: unusual for him,
0: from what we know. Well, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that he liked women. Well, he? that's true. You don't marry six times and cut two wives' heads off if you haven't got a certain poncho. <laughs> you haven't
1: got a romantic bone in your body, if you exactly. haven't cut a man's head
0: off, a woman's head off. <laughs> well, he's both. Yeah, that's true. Very liberal. <laughs> <laughs> His older brother, Prince Arthur, uh, of course, is meant to be king, married the Spanish infant Catherine of Aragon, but died soon afterwards at the age of 15. So Henry unexpectedly becomes the heir. Mm. And he's a bit of a caged bird, kept under very tight watch by Henry VII when he becomes uh, the heir. Given no responsibility, no kingly schooling, he's kept indoors and out of the public. But Henry, is a very, Henry VIII is a very vainglorious, vibrant personality, desperate to get out. Do we have any record of what Henry VII thought of Henry VIII? I'm not entirely sure, I suppose. I mean, very cautious man, Henry Seventh. Yeah, I w- can't imagine they would have got on. And he probably was a little bit. A bit uh, nervous, <laughs> then, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Think, well, something not quite civil servicey about you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but sure enough, fifteen oh nine, he comes to the throne, and he's very popular when he becomes king. Okay. So we think of him now as being this sort of big, fat, monstrous tyrant. Mm-hmm. But at the time, he's just on the verge of turning eighteen. Resembles his maternal grandfather Edward IV. So he's very tall, at six foot two. Mm-hmm. At a 32-inch waist and a forty inch chest,
1: that's big,
0: isn't it? Well, it's, the chest is big and muscly yeah, but yeah. the well, 32-inch waist yeah. is slim. So you know that's mm. the good sort of Olympic V-shape. gymnast mm-hmm. V shape, exactly. Straight, Auburn hair. And uh, Piero Pasquiligo in uh, 1515 uh, said his majesty is the most handsome potentate I ever set eyes on with an extremely fine calf to his leg, which at the time was quite the uh, the thing. His complexion very fair and bright with auburn hair combed straight and short and a round face so very beautiful that it would become a pretty woman. And he was proved right. Indeed. So, Henry, Henry's quite hot yeah, in this young age. Stuff. And uh, he's also a lovely, lovely guy. No, he's not. The philosopher Erasmus described him as a man of gentle friendliness and gentle in debate. He acts more like a companion than a king. And Thomas More said he makes every man feel that he is enjoying his special favour. Right. So, I've written this as the Clinton touch, which maybe is not quite what I intended to imply, but he's got that <laughs> He's got that way of making you feel like you're the most important person yeah. in the room. He's got yeah. that popular touch, that. That star quality, dare we say, about him. Mm. Um, And he's incredibly talented. He's a Renaissance prince. He understands Latin. He speaks fluent French. He's a fine horseman, tennis player and archer. He loved jousting, these public tournaments. Mm. Wasn't
1: so good at wrestling, though, was he?
0: Not so good at wrestling against the King of France. He also loved dancing and costumes, dressing up and making play. Of course he did. Excellent singer. Apparently he could sight-read.
1: Now, is he, though? Mm. Because if...
0: We have no... Evidence. Yeah, of his singing we've just abilities. got
1: people saying, "My word, my lord, what an excellent singer you are!" Bar, blah. blah, blah. <laughs> so, you know, he could have said anything.
0: But I suppose these are ambassadors who are writing back. to oh, right. book oh, okay. oh, okay. Rather Fine. than just Henry's people writing yeah. messages saying, "Oh, well done, well a plus well, yeah. again." <laughs> um, and he composes poetry, and he composes music. Do we have any poetry left? Uh oh probably we do he writes love letters to Anne Boleyn that we've uh, still got uh but music we have green sleeves he didn't write but past time with a company it's quite a catchy little uh
1: well we'll, well, we'll dig that out and number. stick it on the website I'll...
0: Indeed um so Henry the 7th had been seen as rather miserly and uh, not too popular Henry the 8th breath of fresh air mm. and the first 20 years everything's lovely uh Thomas Wolsey pretty much runs the country and Henry's just hunting partying having fun that's fine. Everything's quiet. Um, he's named Defender of the Faith by the Pope for a polemic against Martin Luther.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember that.
0: Yeah. And uh, his main passion really is diplomacy. So he's kind of really involved in the stuff with France and Spain, together with England as mm-hmm. with the three European powers. So he's not
1: he's not doing the internal politics, that's all.
0: He can't be bothered with that. Yeah. somebody else. Yeah. But things change. Happy marriage to Catherine Aragon for about 20 years, which people... Often forget, mm. but only one surviving child, which was a girl, Mary. Mm. Henry fears that marrying his brother's widow was seen as wrong in God's eyes. Consequently, they would never have a son.
1: So this is when he's 37, 38.
0: Yeah, he's in his mid-30s and he's starting to think, oof, I haven't really achieved anything in 20 years and I'm not even going to produce a son.
1: Midlife crisis. For Midlife the crisis. The and of course,
0: Wars of the Roses still within living memory for some mm. people. Doesn't produce a son. It could be absolutely chaos. Mm. So he is obsessed by this, and he's also obsessed with Anne Boleyn. Yes, falls head over heels in love with her. As I said, he writes her love letters, sends her gifts, and again, it's something we don't tend to associate with a lot of monarchs other prior to this period. Mm. This very lovey-dovey emotion. Yeah, a bit of thing. a soft side. He's there. he's mm-hmm. love struck. He can't help himself. Um, ardent romantic and needing a son couldn't just have her as a mistress he actually had to marry her mm-hmm. but for some reason Catherine of Aragon isn't too keen to go quietly about this mm-hmm. she won't have the marriage annulled and the papacy won't do it either because of being controlled by Spain and Catherine oh, Arrigan, okay. a of Aragon being Spanish so influenced by Anne and also Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell Henry VIII breaks from the Church of Rome marries Anne Boleyn and completely changes the course of English history
1: yeah, he just slipped that in there. Breaks of the Church of broke. No, that, yeah. is, that is huge.
0: Doesn't have a son with Anne Boleyn, of course, so he got her head off. Yeah. But finally had success with Jane Seymour, mm-hmm. his third wife. Huge celebrations at the birth of Edward VI. Um, over 2,000 rounds of cannon fired off at the Tower of London. All Paris churches in England uh, ringing peals of bells in celebration. And Henry openly wept when he first holds Edward in his arms. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, devastated, however, when Jane Seymour dies shortly afterwards. Mm. And uh, again, his emotions at the Forby wore black for three months, uh, a little proto victoria Perhaps. Man, perhaps. Uh, didn't remarry for three years. Which is going somewhere. Which is going somewhere. <laughs> Uh, but of course the biggie here that has come about is the reformation 1534 the act of supremacy he declared supreme head on earth of the church of england inferior only to god but this really raises monarchy to its most powerful point in history defines england as an independent sovereign nation is a real Mm. cut from the rest of europe and uh changes the religion after almost a thousand years and as you said the effects are still being felt today
1: yeah totally yeah it's, it's it's such an impact properly good scandal
0: and his final years, he turns to a tyrant. He certainly does. It's a terrible change. As he said, the execution of and Fisher and Boleyn in 1536, Thomas Cromwell, his m- most loyal minister in mm. 1540, after the failed marriage strand of Cleves, his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, in 1542, gets executed. Yeah, Still yeah, looks quite a, another one. And the court becomes a real viper's nest of plots and intrigue. Henry VIII turns from that gorgeous hot dude into a bit of a physical monster. <laughs> His leg injury, um, jousting, in 1536, sees his leg continually flare up with ulcers. And it's really just oozing uh, pus and blood and foul smells. Chapuis, the Spanish ambassador, described him as then having the worst legs in the world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And
0: you think when he was so proud of his fine calf early on... Yeah,
1: now they've got pus dribbling down them.
0: uh, ...couldn't exercise anymore, binges on red wine and meat, particularly after the death of Jane Seymour ends up with a 54-inch waist and a 57-inch chest, weighing 28 stone or so. That's nearly double. Yeah. Wow. And the debate, of course, is how he changes. And a fascinating thing, again, about Henry VIII, is just think why he captures the imagination. He's not just the tyrant, he's also Mm. the Renaissance prince, and it's the change which is so interesting. Um, The impact of the injuries and whether or not he had head trauma, at least the leg injury, would have pretty much put him in a bad mood. On yeah. a permanent <laughs> basis, the Reformation effectively means that he is second only to God. Yeah, now. that's going to do something for your self-esteem. So it? whatever sort of limits there were on yeah. his ego before, yeah, he is now pretty much weird. a God. Yeah, And 1536, he has that Anna Cerebilis where um, Anne Boleyn um, supposed adultery. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Aragon had died, his illegitimate son Henry Fitzroy died. Sees him leading to sort of reassert his vigour. So he grows a beard, just sign of virility, of course. Okay. And Holbein—that's when he does that famous portrait that oh, dominates yeah. our yeah. view of Henry VIII, yeah, the monarchy. It's all really him, just sort of trying to get on the front foot again. And thereafter, he's very suspicious. So anyone that slightly appears to have failed him in some way, head off. Head off.
1: That's yeah. That's the response that we know of. Yeah. Henry, isn't
0: it? But still, through all of this, it's weirdly relatable. So it's interesting seeing how events shape him. Mm. He's not just this relentless sort of like Henry Mark V. Mm. He's emotional. Things happen and it affects him and it changes him. He mostly marries for love rather than politics. Emotional letters to Anne Boleyn, mourning Jane Seymour, crying over Catherine Howard's adultery and happy tears with the sixth. Yes, Midlife crisis, as we said, finds himself without really having achieved anything, and always this sort of fear of his own mortality. Mm. And indeed he said himself, Time is of all losses the most irrecuperable, for it can never be redeemed for no manner price nor prayer.
1: in there, mm. yeah, that's, that's always tricky.
0: Finally dies in 1547, um, surprisingly that he actually made it to 55 given yeah. the state that he was in but for someone who's so healthy as a young man it's another rather early death
1: and it's and this is what we came across before that it was such a short amount of time the Henry that we know mm. is just such a small amount of his life
0: it's only really sort of the last 10 years
1: yeah and there's all that stuff before mm. that gets compacted into sort of two sentences yeah. and then the Henry we know is the very very last bit
0: so that's Henry VIII, mm-hmm. a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah. Next up, Queen Victoria. Do okay, we have to, right? Born in 1819, which is 195 years ago, and she comes to the throne in 1837. So again, very young, only 18 years old. Yes, that's true.
1: 195 years ago, that's not long ago at all. And given that she reigned for so long, yeah, we're dealing with such big numbers. It's yeah. so
0: recent. The big thing at the start for her is the Kensington system. Mm-hmm. Her mother had married the Duke of Kent, who wasn't liked by the king at the time, George IV. Kent died soon after Victoria was born, leaving her mother isolated and mm-hmm. you know, without any friends. Vulnerable. So she comes to rely on the head of her household, Mr Conroy. Good looking and ambitious, takes control of all of her affairs. Mm-hmm. Rumours about whether they were lovers or not, but the important thing is that he's basically running the show and she relies on him. And he wants to ensure his future position. After George the dies, William William the Fourth comes to the throne. Brexit mm-hmm. like winner, yes. He didn't have particularly good health. No, but robust enough. Robust enough, but it was clear that he wasn't going to last a very long time. Mm-hmm. And Victoria, at this point, was a few years short of turning eighteen. Conroy thinks that keeping Victoria under his thumb ensures that when there is a regency, he and the mother will mm-hmm. rule the roost, and then he can give himself money and land and titles. He's a self-made man at this point. Yeah. So, Victoria uh, is kept separate from court, educated solely at Kensington Palace. Her every movement is controlled. Couldn't even go downstairs without somebody holding her hand.
1: That sounds awful.
0: Even when she's, you know, 17. Yeah. Had to sleep in her mother's bed. What? With her mother again until she's 17. Wow. And um, Didn't have any childhood companions other than Conroy's own children who were basically just spying on her. Mm so it's a re- not a very nice uh, period for her growing up Conroy puts lots of pressure on Victoria tries to get her to sign documents agreeing guaranteeing his position as head of her household when she becomes queen mm. but Victoria is a typically stubborn Hanoverian Perfect. she's got a bit of metal and she resists Conroy um, so even though she was ill with stress she keeps on refusing Conroy it's very much a sort of a Disney story
1: yes this it is, that's a really good point the yeah. young
0: princess, the evil Conroy and William IV held on for long enough that she mm. turns eighteen. So the Lord Chamberlain, the Archbishop of Canterbury, go from William's deathbed to Kensington in the early hours when it was still dark. Victoria comes down in slippers and a cotton dressing gown, and learns that she's a Queen of England.
1: And she's having a handheld as she goes down those stairs, yes, but not anymore. But not on the
0: way up. <laughs> the thing I really liked about Victoria, and it probably went the other way for you, unfortunately, yeah. is that we get so much of her.
1: Yeah yeah her
0: diaries and letters she wrote something like two and a half thousand words a day for all of her adult life
1: boy she does,
0: and she emphasizes her feelings as well it's one of the nice things you really get a sense of how she feels about stuff so she underlines words sometimes Mm. two or three times exclamation marks at the end yeah sort of like a teenager really yeah (laughs) completely writing and um her early years she's uh she's quite short Mm-hmm. Very short, I He's about four foot eleven.
1: That is very short. Sorry mm-hmm. if any of you are four foot eleven, but that's... It is quite short. it's pretty small.
0: Uh, quite inclined to plumpness. Mm-hmm. Uh, classic Hanoverian profile with quite prominent nose and slightly goggly eyes. Uh, blue eyes and long flowing hair.
1: You're describing a Muppet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which Muppet?
1: <laughs> well, that one I'm thinking, principally, of the one who plays saxophone in the band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll post a picture up of it on Facebook. <laughs>
0: Um, But we don't associate Victoria with um, anything involving mirth or happiness or humour or anything. But, this Mm -hmm. is what Contemporary said, Dame Ethel Smythe. So awe-inspiring was the first impression that I should have been terrified but for the wonderful blue childlike eyes and the sweetest, most entrancing smile I have ever seen on a human face. Again... Does he just want to be in royal favour? These are diaries. These are just diaries. Mary Ponson said no smile was the least like it and no shadow of it preserved under the evil spell of the camera. It came very suddenly in the form of a mild radiance over the whole face, a flash of kindly light beaming from the eyes. That's a smile, all right. That's- so she, you know, she's a very, as a young girl, she's very, well, a young woman rather. She's cheerful but headstrong, so she's quite obstinate, mm. like all Hanoverians. Uh, but she's very expressive and emotional. She has her insecurities. And remember, her upbringing is quite difficult, so she's going yeah, to have a lot really, of yeah. uh, troubles there. Very stressful childhood. And quite naive about the world as well, because she's so isolated. Yeah. It's getting quite similar to Henry VIII in a way. They both had quite claustrophobic
1: after yeah true. really,
0: and both quite emotional and quite mm. insecure in many ways as mm. well. Um, she had a reputation of being a gobbler with her food.
1: A, what, a go- uh, oh, she right. gobbled.
0: Yeah, uh, ate a lot and quickly. Again, Henry VIII as a <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. And again, quite a lot like a muppet, I'd
0: imagine. <laughs> uh, a keen artist as well, and she had a real sense of humour. Did she, Mister Creevy? Said, uh, she laughs in real earnest, opening her mouth as wide as it can go. Delightful. So, That's a Muppet. So full of girlish glee and gladness.
1: I can't believe I haven't noticed this before. <laughs> um, OK, well, so far we've got that she smiles and has laughed at least once.
0: One example of a point at which she was in hysterics was one chap, Admiral Foley, who was a rather elderly and hard of hearing mm. ex-admiral. And he was telling really dull stories in great detail about his ship, the HMS Euridity. And when finally he paused at one stage, uh, Victoria asked him a question about his sister. Mm. But he misheard and thought that she'd asked him about his ship. Mm. Well, Mum, I'm going to have it turned over, take a good look at her bottom, and have it well scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> that is good gag. That's brilliant. And Victoria, in tears of laughter, had to hold her face, uh, held a handkerchief over her face to cover up because she was laughing so much. So she liked quite sort of uh, simple. Uh, That's great, things though. Things like I would that.
1: use anyone to not laugh at that <laughs> in situation. And the early
0: years, she was having a, a great time, sort of effectively, because um, she's sort of blossoming now as a young woman, she's mm. spring
1: queening. Oh, nice. Very good. That's very fine. First
0: uh, scripted Rhett Factor joke there. (laughs) Uh, Her first Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, was a sort of a man of the world and a bit of a lounge lizard. Mm. And quite lazy, they just sat about. Um, He enjoyed being a mentor and uh, they just chatted and she listened to his stories and anecdotes and funny opinions.
1: (sighs) Politics was a different game on those (laughs) days, wasn't it? it
0: One of which was uh, about Henry VIII. Was it? And uh, when Victoria was suggesting he didn't treat his wives very well, and yeah. Melbourne said, oh, but those women bothered him, sir.
1: And <laughs> well, then Victoria turns around and goes, "Corky."
0: <laughs> <laughs> However, Wellington feared that uh, Melbourne was a bit of a bad influence on her. He yeah. joked too much. And Victoria became a bit too dependent on him. So when he had to step down briefly, as Prime Minister and Peel should have taken over, her stubbornness... Over Peel's expectation that she would appoint Tory ladies to her bedchamber led to the bedchamber crisis, where there was such a standoff that Peel couldn't actually form a government, Mm. uh, which Victoria was delighted about. But there was a sense that maybe she was just a little bit too wild and temperamental Mm. at this stage. But, as you said, she needs a man and she found a man. (laughs) She did, yeah. Prince Albert. Uh, three months younger than Victoria, he'd had an unhappy childhood as well, uh, but had a very sort of strict morality, hardworking, intellectual and public-spirited. So he's much more grounded and sensible than Victoria.
1: He's the commit to her, Miss Piggy.
0: If you will. Mm. Uh, so, initially, Victoria doesn't like the idea of getting married. She didn't want to lose her independence. Mm. But the second time she meets Albert, she falls utterly in love with him. It was with some emotion that I beheld Albert, who is beautiful, Albert really is quite charming and so excessively handsome. Such beautiful eyes, an exquisite nose and such a pretty mouth. It's a bit like Henry VIII again, isn't it? Well,
1: yeah, with his <laughs> mouth and his all. <laughs> with
0: delicate mustachios and slight but very slight whiskers. A beautiful figure, broad in the shoulders and a fine waist.
1: That's that is a frog that she's
0: describing, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> they get married and become the model family, a very large family, lots of children, and they're determined to end this scandalous Hanoverian court. Mm. No more debauchery, the middle-class ideal, things like the, sort of the Christmas with the, yeah. the trees, white wedding dresses from mm. Victoria's wedding, all this sort of thing. They're yeah. the ideal. Okay. Sadly, however, Albert dies in 1861.
1: And we never hear the end of it.
0: Victoria is quite upset about this. Um she wears black for the rest of her life, preserves most of the rooms in the palaces exactly as they'd been Mm -hmm. when Albert died, including laying out like his clothes and shaving stuff and things like this. Uh but she had really relied on our you know, we sort of we dismiss her a bit for it now, the fact that she grieves, but you know, this is the, the love of her life and Nine pregnancies, postnatal depression. She'd been so reliant on Albert that she pretty much loses all sense of purpose Mm. after he dies. As she said, my nature is too passionate, my emotions too fervent, and I am a person who has to cling to someone in order to find peace and comfort. My life was dependent on his. I had no thoughts except of him. My whole striving was to please him, to be less unworthy of him. Yeah, and so...
1: That's it, then, for the next how many years?
0: Well, uh, she she largely abandons public life. Yeah. We have a bit of an empty throne at this point, other than when she opens memorials to mm. Albert, of course. Uh, wouldn't open Parliament, increasingly unpopular. Some people rumouring that she's got the George III Madness Syndrome.
1: Yeah, you could see why that, I think that.
0: Uh, Republican elements even start to spring up. Voices mm. start to say, why why do we even need a Queen if you no-one's know, no there? The Prince of Wales is a bit rubbish as well. we are doing fine without. Uh, But she gradually returns to the fold. Her gilly, John Brown, becomes her chief servant (laughs) helps her regain her confidence, fills the vacuum for a supportive Mm. person to lean on. The flattery of her Prime Minister, Disraeli, and her dislike of her other Prime Minister, Gladstone, Mm -hmm. coaxes her back into politics
1: yes by force because she hated himself yes. yeah.
0: so she's getting involved again boosted by sales of her journal her Highlands journal where she sort of did paintings and little writings mm. about holidays and the Highlands had a difficult relationship with her eldest son Bertie the future Edward VII had blamed him for Albert's death but he fell almost fatally ill with typhoid fever exactly 10 years after Albert had died mm. Nation was on tenterhooks she was at his bedside and when he pulled through there were national celebrations and Victoria agreed to have a ceremony procession through London in which she and Edward are in an open carted carriage. She raised his hands, waving to the crowd. Back. She's back. Ten years later, she's back. And she is hugely popular for the rest of her reign. Two jubilees that she enjoys. uh, The Golden Jubilee in 1887, the Diamond Jubilee in 1897. And this is the period of empire. Her as this sort of Britannia figurehead. Disraeli pursues this sort of jingo jingoistic mm. line, expanding territories, getting huge public support as a result. She's delighted Victoria to be named the Empress of India.
1: Yeah, everyone would love that.
0: Gladstone she really hates, uh, doesn't like his high church seriousness and radical policies. Um so she supports Salisbury, um, the Tory opponents of Gladstone in the later years against things like home rule and that kind of thing. Mm. So she's really getting involved in diplomatic stuff with the Empire, the politics at home and all the prime ministers. And the Diamond Jubilee 1897 is made a festival of empire. Um, So she really is literally the embodiment of Britannia. And there is a photo of her smiling at the procession in public. She's so moved. I think it might be real. Really? A real photo. How kind they are. No one ever, I believe, has met with such an ovation as was given to me. The crowds were quite indescribable. And their enthusiasm really marvellous and deeply touching. (laughs)
1: Well, Yeah. I mean, why? Why were they so happy? Do you think? Because
0: they loved her. She's hugely popular. She's the centre of this Victorian age. <laughs> this is the Jubilee, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Right. Sorry. I thought for a minute we were talking about when she went around with Bertie. Ah, mean, a lot of people were "Who's that? Haven't seen her for Who's the little lady in black?
0: <laughs> <laughs> she finally dies in 1901. Uh, unlike the two Henrys, not entirely before her time, at the age of 81, and. Uh, it's national morning when she dies the Spectator magazine said we have come to the end of a great and glorious epoch we have reached our zenith and the nation must now begin to decline By kind of glim- true I mean, it's not at it its height, a... height
1: but you can see there's there's a line drawn there it's height it of division, power though? even not yeah. quite
0: of its territory
1: yeah that's true
0: and that's got to say something for the the hold that she has over the country mm. that when she dies everybody thinks Oof, th- things are going to get bad now
1: well, it's, I suppose because it was such a long period and such a long period of prosperity and success and stability from her, at least, in was yeah. 70 years that when that ends you think it's like an earthquake things you've always taken for granted shift right. and you're like, oh god, what does the future hold? Yeah, I can imagine it would be a bit shaky
0: So, thanks <laughs> <laughs> for all the life and reigns mm-hmm. It's uh, not quite as much detail as we've done previously, but let's have a little reminder of how they were, each of the factors, and how they stack up alongside yeah. each other.
1: Okay. battleliness.
0: So, Henry II. Yes. I, on one level, it's amazing.
1: It's undoubtedly.
0: First off, he comes in, breaks all these sieges with the castles, builds new and better ones, Dover, of course... Yes, that's a biggie Incredible castle Previously everybody used to lay waste to the land around a castle and just besiege it But Henry just gets all the resources he possibly can mm. And just goes straight in mm. As a man of action, he doesn't yeah. wait around oh, no way. He's got somewhere else to run off to the, yeah. later in the day And uh, apparently he was actually besieging a castle in Normandy when he came to the throne When he, when Stephen died And yeah. his friend said, oh you better rush over before someone else gets there yeah. To which apparently he said they wouldn't dare <laughs> oh, nice. Finished besieging the castle, and then yeah. went over to become king. That's true, though.
1: Who mm. could possibly challenge exactly. that after the anarchy?
0: Till he'd had any of his sons, there was nobody yeah. in the world yeah. that could possibly threaten him. Um, and his Angevin Empire is just huge. I said, Anjou, Aquitaine, Normandy, Maine, Poitou, Gascony, mm. uh, Bordeaux, Brittany, all the left and middle of France. Yeah. It's huge.
1: Uh, well, I mean, what other powers were... Were, what were the other major European powers at the time? France, but yeah. he had bigger territory than yeah. The King even of though France.
0: technically he was a vassal of the King of France, it's yeah. a bizarre relationship.
1: Uh, Spain wasn't at its height. Not point. really. I mean, the
0: Holy Roman Emperor would have been mm. the other.
1: So really, clause. in the world that they knew it, yeah, he was, he was as I mean, it was a huge empire. I mean, mm. Victoria by then we discovered the entire world, <laughs> but. um these guys Europe was it
0: really yeah and I mean it's more I think than Edward III ever, mm. ever had cool. um, so that's incredible and the thing I really love is like you said that energy the way that he just zoomed around yeah because he was always on the move not just it wasn't within England it was all across his territories mm. uh, Peter said he never sits unless riding a horse or eating in a single day if necessary he can run through four or five marches and thus foiling the plots of his enemies frequently mocks their plots with surprise sudden arrivals uh, Herbert of Bosham describes it as a human chariot, and Louis the Seventh said he must fly rather than travel by horse or ship. Mm. Yeah. Scotland is subdued as well. William the Lion, captured when attacking Annick in the Great Revolt, made to submit to Henry, and has southern Scotland garrisoned by, by English ship. troops. Yeah, nice. Pretty impressive. And, of course, he sees off that great revolt against Louis Seventh. his sons, Alan of Aquitaine. Yeah, he's everybody. a
1: survivor, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. The thing we had against him, which wasn't quite so hot, was that partly the Angevin Empire isn't really a centralized empire like Victoria's mm. empire. it's just lots of territories that he's going to give away to his sons when he dies and it's always kind of defensive patrolling stuff. there isn't really a big battle yes. that we can identify. He isn't conquering
1: yeah, and he's got he got no need to actually seek out more territory so it's just it's just consolidating mm. Mm. so With the knowledge that it's going to get split up at his death yeah.
0: That's not so hot. Up until the 1170s, Henry's the prime mover. He's this force of energy who's just dominating. Mm. Once the sons start coming of age, Henry's reacting to events. Yeah. He's okay. no longer really in charge of his destiny quite so much. Mm. He's still keeping a lid on it for the most period, but it does end a little bit ignominiously. And his last words, apparently, were, uh, Now let everything go as it will. I care no longer for myself or anything else in the world. Shame. Shame on a conquered king.
1: His last words were that he was a conquered king. Mm. Wow.
0: But he's not really a conquered king. He's not really.
1: Yeah, it's good. I think I think actually it is good. We've given good scores to other people who are consolidating. Yeah. And uh, this was European territory at its height. Yeah. It's jolly good.
0: Henry VIII is less good.
1: He is pretty bad. But...
0: I mean, he idolises Henry V. Mm. So, you know, he wants a bit of military glory. He does have the Battle of the Spurs in which the English cavalry took the French by surprise and forced them into flight.
1: I kind of feel with Henry though, he would be the most boring chap at a dinner party because every time he'd say, have you heard of the Battle of the Spurs? It'd, like the, <laughs> it'd all get inflated, all the stories, and, oh, he's dining out on that one for years.
0: And what would happen is that someone would, who was there would say, oh yeah, wasn't that just quite a minor skirmish? And, you weren't actually there, were you? You were looking the other way while everyone else suddenly charged off. Yeah. So you didn't actually technically take part in the battle, did you? And didn't you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: 1550, uh,
0: 1544, another French campaign led 40,000 inter- uh, troops into France and besieged Boulogne. Uh, bombardment and undermining, so I'm captured the castle and the city.
1: And he made good use of that, and we still got it today, or did he lose it? Uh,
0: it pretty much got lost within a few years later. Right. And it wasn't all that impressive, because being quite big at that point, he actually had to be lifted onto his horse by a crane.
1: Oh, Henry, it's not... I mean, it's not good. I mean, he probably... I know everyone invents PR, but he probably invented PR with this Holbein portrait, because mm. he, he looks so powerful there. that, like, You don't imagine someone... Wiping his bottom and sticking him on a horse. <laughs> <He does. laughs> they don't show that bit in the oils. Not often, certainly. No,
0: no. Um, he does do some actually good things. Military developments, the device forts all along the coast.
1: Yeah, that's cool.
0: He used cartography, quite advanced um, form of defence. Uh, he only inherited a handful of ships, but he builds 50 specialist warships mm. during this period. And So, you know, there are some... Quite important developments, and there's a great victory in uh, at Flodden in 1513. James the Fourth of Scotland and most of his nobles are killed, but Henry at the time mm-hmm. is in France, while Catherine of Aragon raises the army. No, of the Duke really? of Norfolk ah. actually leads the yeah. uh, leads the troops into battle,
1: and it's not it's not uh, it's fighting to maintain it, it, the sovereign territory not expanding it which is still kind of what I think they'd want to do there. He mm. well, wouldn't want it in a modern king no. but <laughs> uh, yeah it's not good. Yeah, He wants to be an emperor but actually he's too fond of red wine chicken.
0: Yeah. Mm. But someone who was an emperor or an empress mm. is Victoria. Yeah she was. British Empire it's the largest geographical spread in history covered a quarter of the globe uh, sorry, a quarter of the world's population, 10 million square miles, 400 million people. That's the saying where yes. the sun never sets in the British Empire.
1: It is phenomenal, isn't it? It's the biggest empire the world has
0: ever seen. Bigger than the Roman Empire.
1: Bigger than the Mongol Empire as well. It's just, <laughs> it's, I mean, huge. There's never been anything like it. And we're
0: a small country.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is is phenomenal.
0: Troops all over the place. And Victoria understands Mm. the nature of empire. She said, if we are to maintain our position as a first-rate power, we must, with our Indian empire and large colonies, be prepared for attacks, I'm emphasising the underlining, and wars somewhere or other continually.
1: Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's... Got a finger on the pulse there.
0: Actually, she gets involved. Crimea and Boa Wars, um, as you were getting obsessed with. She's knitting socks. Well, this
1: is it, you see. Like, these other guys. I know she can't, um, because they're not allowed in battle at this stage. But there's something about the knitting others. Knitting socks. Yeah, there's something about the other, <laughs> There's something about the fact that her reaction, or her response, is to knit socks. So it's that's... not the most rex-factory response, is it? It's not her...
0: Only response, it's one of the no, things. But you think
1: respond. of Elizabeth, the right. speech at Tilbury, uh, yeah. you know, getting armoured up, and uh, Victoria's maybe, they, maybe they've probably got quite chilly feet. Well, I
0: mean, t- which was more useful to the campaign <laughs> well, socks yeah. or a speech to the people that weren't actually out at yeah. sea fighting the battle? Mm. She regularly reviews troops, made a point of waving them off. Yeah, uh, sock in hand, sock in hand. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, look, I've invented the sock puppet. <laughs>
0: Early step towards the Muppets. Well, that's true, there you go. Um, involved in establishing the Victoria Cross. Yeah. Came up with the motto for it.
1: Lest thy feet be cold.
0: <laughs> and uh, she's a very old woman in the Boer War. Yeah. Fact, it gives yeah. her a new uh, sense of life. She visits the wounded, sends supportive letters to generals. And uh, when she was meeting with a rather downbeat minister, mm. when they were experiencing some defeat, she rather put him in his place. Mm. Please understand that there is no one depressed in this house. We are not interested in the possibilities of defeat. They do not exist.
1: Yeah, I suppose they never know defeat. So this
0: is like you know, sort of woman into her late seventies and Mm. telling this sort of younger minister, "Oh, buck up your ideas and stop being so defeatist. We're going to win this war, damn it!"
1: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: Hmm. Mm. Um. the tricky thing with the British Empire is that again, there aren't really those big epic battles. There's no Trafalgar or Waterloo, which had no. been earlier in the century. And there's quite a lot of unimpressive campaigns. You know, defeats to the Zulus, um, defeats to the Boers, the first Afghan war where the armour gets wiped out. The Crimean War is the only one where all the big powers are against each other. Mm. And that's all a bit of a mess.
1: And we managed to do another Dunkirk there with the the Light Brigade the Charter Charter and the to turn them into some sort of weird victory.
0: Uh, so... You know, in some ways, it doesn't actually look so impressive.
1: No, not at all. She's kind of riding the waves, like uh, um, the the those previous great victories have set up this period. Hmm. She sits on the wave and surfs it, and when she when she dies, the wave sort of crashes, and everyone's going, "What's left?" <laughs>
0: On in this, uh... Though at the same time, it it is incredible, the fact that there are all these little conflicts, but the British army is so small mm. relative to the population that it's ruling. Yeah. To keep all of these places in check.
1: To keep a quarter of the world's population in check.
0: Because it's not the entire army in one country that gets defeated by the Zulus. Mm. It's one little division mm. in this bit, and there's another one in another bit. Mm. All over Africa and India and... North America, Australia, New Zealand. It was the Navy, wasn't it? None of them really have a great battle or no. kind of campaign or conquest to impress. But certainly Henry II and Victoria, they do have massive empires.
1: Yeah, not even Henry II, has one. Yeah. That's weird. Mm. They're three three massive monarchs. Yeah, and yet... Not a single yeah. you know, defining battle between them. Weird mm. Scandal
0: think they make up for it here though.
1: they well some of them do certainly
0: well um I mean Henry the Second has a bit of your standard promiscuity about eleven illegitimate children. Nothing. Uh Nix's wife from the King of France yeah. and, um imprisons her for yeah. most of the reign. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think let's be honest Thomas Beckett the Archbishop of Canterbury is hacked to death at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. And
1: everyone every British um a school child mm. I still think learns this or or at least knows this. It's it's how many years ago? Getting on for eight hundred and fifty. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It, that's that's really hard down the the years, old, isn't it? That's yeah. proper front page of the century. Review of the century. <laughs> Thomas Beckett.
0: And he you know, he fears excommunication, he pretty much hides an island for two years. do he? And is you know, then doing his penance, the monks giving him the rod? It's It's an incredible scandal.
1: That is is well up there, if not the top scandal.
0: But Henry VIII certainly gives it a good go.
1: If there's anyone to challenge him, it's this man.
0: Bit of a scattergun approach when it comes to scandalous (laughs) murders. He really thinks, let's just be absolutely sure that I've (laughs) nailed this one down.
1: How many have I killed? One more. Just one more will do it. One more, that's the same approach to eating.
0: (laughs) Six wives. Yeah. Uh, And Catherine of Aragon was his wife from 1599 to 1533. So his last five were in the space of about seven years.
1: That's phenomenal. I still, every time I hear it, (laughs) can't get my head around that.
0: Races through them. Yeah. Uh, He breaks from Rome. Almost a thousand years of Catholicism. I mean,
1: that's more punchy, really, isn't it, than Beckett? I mean, Beckett is your traditional scandal. Mm. This is really Deep, deep <laughs> trouble. I mean, uh, the fact that there's still people being killed today. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is amazing. I mean, he gets should get eleven, really. <laughs>
0: yeah, he should. Dissolving the monasteries, um, his ex- all the executions.
1: I mean, all the. Ex- we can actually forget them. He's done it. He's got the thing. If you he's he's Mike Tyson hitting the thing at the fair. It's already going ding 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 ding, <laughs> and he's carrying on hitting it. Uh,
0: and lest we forget he did behead two of his six wives.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's coming at the end of that list. Yeah. Crikey. It's what happened at his funeral? I imagine it would have been a big coffin. Those poor pallbearers. Oof. They must have actually had to use some farm animals. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> I mean, he was the size of a farm animal himself. Yeah. yeah. We're going to need a bigger coffin. Yeah, we certainly are. Now, come on. Give it to me, Victoria.
0: What have you got... Bit of a girlish crush on Melbourne.
1: Bit of a girlish crush. After all that, crikey.
0: Rumours that she was uh, a lover with, uh, uh, that she and John Brown were lovers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she got nicknamed Mrs. Brown.
1: Oh, naughty.
0: Uh, she wanted to write a biography um, of him after his death and dedicated a second island journal to him, uh, the first one having been dedicated to Albert.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she had secret instructions for a lock of uh, John Brown's hair and his. Uh, l- l- ring to be put in her coffin alongside stuff for Albert. All right. So there's little is thinking, oh, did they secretly get married? Was there something there? It's so it's a little bit. It doesn't quite compare with Beckett and no. everything Henry VIII mm. did, but you know that's that's moderately scandalous.
1: Moderately, how how likely do we do we think it is really? Surely not. Sure. No, surely
0: yeah. she didn't. Um, she
1: could, she'd have felt like she was um, betraying Albert.
0: She would. She no would. way. I think she just needed a man to, she have was to support very her. Fond of him. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And so when it comes to the Scandal, Victoria doesn't really stack up. No. I mean, Henry II, Henry VIII are the, the Rex actor winners. These two are the.
1: Oh, it's, I, it's incredible that they're in the same group, really. Yeah. <laughs> really. I mean, the three, I mean, we're going to get this with all of these nine, but, I mean, those are. That's a, we've got the height of empire. Henry VIII, I mean, many tourists to England would see that him as just the face of a king.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, this is um, a little... And the winner. Some, some props are are uh, playing cards that we used. Uh, front of it, mm. Henry, Henry VIII, VIII yeah. bizarrely Mary I as well. And a uh, little, uh, little book I've got, a little handy pocket guide to the kings mm. and queens of England, who is the only face on the front cover. Big fat Henry. Henry VIII. Um, so you've got Victoria completely
1: symbolising Britannica, of Britannia, um, Henry VIII symbolising the monarchy, and then the Rex Factor points winner.
0: Yeah, amazing. Subjectivity. Henry the Second is probably one of the few monarchs we can say actually seems to care about improving the lives of his mm. subjects. Oh, okay. Which is a nice trait to have. As you said, Certainly. he's got quite a more sympathetic personality, particularly mm. when we compare it to yeah. uh, Henry VIII. Certainly.
1: Although Henry VIII had his little tear earlier
0: earlier on. Yeah. Earlier on. Yeah. Um, Improved law and order after the anarchy. Biggie, of course, is uh, the Assize of Clarendon, 1166, proved a major development towards English common law. Establishes the principle of trial by jury, uh, where twelve lawful men had to report under oath any accusations of any crime that they were aware of. Henry takes a strong personal interest in law and justice, said to have lain awake at nights thinking of legal language and changes and things like this, debates things with his ministers after he's been hunting all day and charging off to France. Mm-hmm. And he comes back and it's like, so, code 129-6. Uh, stroke <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, uh, And he's very generous as well. 1176, there's a famine in Maine and you, so Henry sent grain to feed 10,000 people, employed Templar night to distribute one-tenth of the royal court food to the poor, protected victims of shipwrecks and penalised anybody who robbed them, which they had a tendency to do. Mm-hmm. Good. So, you know, he's doing nice things. Henry the Eighth, not perhaps not so quite so public spirited yes,
1: <laughs> no, sure yeah.
0: in his favor is the Renaissance print stuff, really, you know, debating theology as a young man with more and Erasmus, the athlete, the musician, the composer, built more palaces than any other monarch mm. before and is gorgeous didn 't technically build it, but he enhances it after, uh, taking, after nicking it from Wolsey, promotes new uh, new men, very able men like Wolsey and Cromwell, and more of course. Uh, some of England's best ministers, really, mm. and he's very wily in the way he operates, so that the ministers always take the fall mm. and the quite literal hit. <laughs> Henry VIII has found a way to rise above it all. Yeah, so you've got all this stuff going on, but Henry mm. isn't threatened by any of these plots. They're all below him, right? So he's managed to set himself up with the supremacy and all of this as really the most powerful monarchy in history. Mm.
1: Yeah, no, he is—he's the zenith of. Uh, of power is of, of all of the kings we reviewed really and what does he do with it? he eats himself to death
0: what a way to go <laughs> uh, on the other hand his excessive spending the, all that money on the palaces tapestries, he had a jacket that cost as much as a farm
1: <laughs>
0: uh, Henry the VII had a huge fortune that he bestowed upon Henry VIII, yeah. Henry pretty much blows it all on his 1513 campaign Constantly yes. in debt, it's only because of the dissolution of the monasteries that he is yeah. able to go off spending again. So really, because of him, his successors are reliant on parliament for taxation. Mm. So you can really see a, a sort of dotted line towards Charles the and the Civil War. Yeah, to an extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it could be that as a good thing or a bad thing, but mm. it's, it's a definite link.
0: Yeah. Um, he's too lazy to get involved in government and administration, so unlike Henry II laying awake at night thinking mm-hmm. about the law, um, Henry found writing tedious and painful and just tended to delegate everything to his ministers. Yeah, I can sympathise with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the, the Reformation and the dissolution, it's, it's not a great uh, thing for the subjects to have such a fundamental change that you are forced to comply with.
1: No, I mean, yeah, a, um, a spiritual, moral issue as well. You have no choice over yeah. there. Pretty bad.
0: I mean, it's, you know, it's personal choice as to whether you prefer the uh, the impact of that now mm. as to the kind of country but we at are, the time. religion. But at the time, yeah. it's quite an upheaval. And he was never fully Protestant either. He never made his position entirely clear. So this allows divisions at court to, to really mm. cement because it's not actually clear which one Henry supports. So actually he...
1: Because he's still taking Mass, isn't he? He's still he, taking Mass. I mean, now yeah. a very Catholic idea.
0: And he's a tyrant, um, really. You know, More nobles executed than anyone before or since. Wives, ministers, courtiers, all at risk. And, you know, he's the only really genuine English tyrant.
1: Really? Is there any other... Well, I mean... Well, Cromwell?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I suppose, of the monarchy, I suppose. But, I mean, technically they're all tyrants, to an extent. Yeah, is obviously that's something of a tyrant. Yeah. But in terms of... Stalin esque power Power abuse, yeah, yeah, Yeah. Victoria. Yes, I mean, there's I think there's no question that this is the period you prefer to live in. in The The Victorian age is incredible, all the inventions, photography, the telephone, radio, railways, figures like Brunel, Darwin, and Dickens, medicine, all this sort of stuff going on, political reforms. We see two thirds of men in England and Wales enfranchised, you can't bribe voters anymore. Secret Ballot. As the population rises from 14 million to about 32 million.
1: That's is such a... I imagine if the population today went from 70 to 140.
0: Good works from the royals. Albert's Great Exhibition 1851 showcased British commerce and all the money raised was then spent on South Kensington museums. Oh, yeah, nice. you know enough today... Yeah. Victoria expresses indignation when officials so prejudice in India on the basis of race. Oh, that is good, yeah. She was anti-racism. Yeah. Um, one of the very few people in public life speaking against revenge after the Indian mutiny. Mm. She really speaks up for reconciliation. And she works very hard, despite this whole thing of her not being there to do the public stuff. Mm. Behind the scenes, she's still doing all her paperwork. When she dies, Balfour noted that immediately a mountain of papers suddenly needed signing, just mm. a few days later. And you think she's doing that for 60-odd years. Mm. Just writing away. And she's writing 2,500 words a day in her diary. And she's writing letters to everyone all across Europe.
1: Yeah. And and she's got time to see John Brown.
0: And she's got time to see John Brown.
1: And write her weird little hiking stories. Yes.
0: And <laughs> she's hugely popular resolved with the Jubilees. Over a million people turning out. And her sort of slightly conservative, imperialist sort of nice views it probably genuinely reflective of the age Mm. so she's not an empty figurehead who just happens to be queen she genuinely personifies the victorian age yeah we spoke about this before what it is
1: yeah the victorian values aren't just i mean the 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 name victoria because of the ruling monarch at the time Mm. But it's deeper than that yeah she is those values they're victorian slash victoria's values yeah exactly.
0: Uh, against it It is of course Still a hard period To live Mass urbanisation The population increase Puts on pressure A surfeit of cheap labour Poverty Lack of housing So you've got slums Child labour All these sorts of things mm. In Ireland of course ah. Potato famine uh, yes. Something like a million died And a million emigrated Population mm. fell by about 20 to 25% mm. Food still being exported
1: So ours doubles And that goes drops by a quarter Yeah these are huge social changes
0: and of course as I think you may have criticised her before we do have the weeping widow phase yeah where she's not really doing an awful lot but yeah she does come through it
1: mm-hmm. now you've done a lot to sway me back to be honest this time
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you'd want to live in Victoria's reign but certainly Henry Second does try to improve Henry Second, I think
1: yeah um, the impact of what he's done mhm is still felt today. I mean, surely Victoria's are as well, but it's proper groundwork stuff. Mm. Really, really major, it's like a trial by jury. Yeah, that's brilliant. Mm. Victoria's is kind of more stuff that I appreciate today, mm. but could go without in favour of the things that mm. that uh, Henry did.
0: Mm. Mm. Tricky. Henry VIII, though, the subjectivity. No good. And it makes an impact. Yes, it
1: certainly does that, yeah. I'm harvesting my onions, whatever, and that's not a euphemism. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be worried about people coming over the horizon, burning the place down to the ground. Meanwhile, he's just dilly-dallying around with wives and breaking from Rome, forcing religion. No, I don't like it.
0: Mm.
1: Don't like it at all.
0: Longevity. Quite long reigning all of these. Henry the Second, eleven fifty four to eighty nine is thirty four point seven five years. Mm-hmm. Henry the eighth, fifteen fifteen nine to forty seven is thirty seven point seven five years, but Queen Victoria, eighteen thirty seven to 1901, 63.58 years. That is massive. As she noted herself in eighteen ninety six, today's the day on which I've reigned longer by a day than any English sovereign. Yeah. And she is still the longest reigning in this She's got a couple of years left before we did this last time, so Elizabeth will take things care her. Yeah. Getting closer and closer. Mm.
1: Does she and her diary have a little um, like, countdown in the top left-hand corner? <laughs> or a flick thing? That'd be brilliant if she... <laughs> because uh, everyone who, to imagine, treats those diaries with such respect and sort of white gloves. <laughs> no one realises. All, no one realises. Yeah, you flick it and the, <laughs> all of the letters make a giant sort of magic eye as you do it.
0: Dynasty. Not the programme. Henry II has four children mm-hmm. that survive him. Quite a few more that don't. Henry VIII has three children. Mm-hmm. And Victoria has six Victoria surviving has children. Six. Yeah.
1: I wouldn't... After all... After those two blokes, mm. I would not have had her coming out on top there. I mean, she—
0: t- I think she had nine that all survived to adulthood, but because she lived so long, third mm. and pre Mind you, she wouldn't have had any um, illegitimate ones. Oh, no. No. Rex Factor! So those are the three monarchs. Mm. And you know, we only one of them is gonna go through.
1: Only one of them is going to go through. That is incredible really, isn't it? How are
0: you how are you feeling about them at this point?
1: Well, I I started the um, I started the podcast with um a very clear rank in my head. And I'm I'm changing. Ooh. No, I'm not saying if that's between first and second, or, thir- or second and third,
0: or first and third.
1: No, they're 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 definitely the same. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine
0: if you put Victoria in first place now.
1: Well, I have more sympathy for her, hmm. and I'm just thinking about the end result. It's got to be they've all got the Rex factor. You know this. Yeah. It's about now. I think it's about leveling the playing field, hmm. and saying, do these people that we know so well deserve it, really, mm. over the other ones who don't? And I think, I think, some people are going to be brought down a peg or two. Ooh,
0: it certainly can't be more than two, because... Only <laughs> 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 <that's true. laughs> three. I mean, it's different. I think, like, the first round was kind of like...
1: Oh, uh, not sorting the from the chaff.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't quite that, because obviously none of them were mm. chaff or whatever, but... It was, you know, you're picking three out of six. Mm. So you kind of say, oh, who deserves to go through? Who are the, you know, the top Mm. dogs? Where now, you're really saying, what is, for me, the Rex Factor? Yeah. They were all wheat. I'm just picking my favourite flavour. Exactly. So now, you know, it's no longer sort of tactical voting or anything like that. You're now deciding what, for you, constitutes the Rex Factor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there are three quite different reasons for giving Mm. them the Rex Factor. Mm. So... It's going to vary now. I think it's just going with your favorites now. You know, is it Henry the Second with this the medieval king? He looks great. He's big personality, chasing around with the empire, mm. all this sort of stuff. Is it the magnificence and well, the initial magnificence of Henry VIII, and then just the sheer impact on history? Exactly. You know, yeah,
1: so? yeah. It's the impact of him. That's it, isn't mm. it? Mm.
0: Or is it Victoria with well again the sort of iconic perhaps more than the impact, but this incredible age and this journey, again this journey that she mm. goes on, a slightly less chaotic one than Henry the Eighth.
1: Yeah, and a sort of guiding maternal figure mm. through an incredibly prosperous age.
0: A little bit like Henry the Eighth. You do there is a big sort of chunk in history where you stop and everything from Victoria onwards is like a chapter.
1: Definitely. Choose that last wave that crashes on the beach.
0: So, voting time I think.
1: I can do it, I'm ready. I'm confident now.
0: So this time, of course, uh, everyone at home, you will only have three monarchs in the group, but you will only be voting for your favourite monarchs. You're only voting for one person this time. So you've got to think about who it is that you want in the final of Rex Factor.
1: Now it's about about that something, isn't Mm. it? Okay, mine's going in the envelope. It's getting sealed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Trying to speak whilst also licking an envelope shut. (laughs) (laughs) Done. We are done. So yeah, it's all up to you, the listeners now. Go to rexfactor.wordpress.com and follow the links to the survey and vote for your one favourite.
1: One favourite this time. Yeah. Of those three. But thanks for listening again. Thank
0: you very much for listening. Please do vote. We're getting near to the end. How
1: long have we got for this period of voting?
0: Towards the end of May. OK. Thanks for listening. Thanks for
1: listening. Cheerio. (laughs)
0: Sorry. A... <laughs> that... <laughs>
1: that was me pretending my pen was an 88mm, German 88mm second war anti-aircraft gun. And they could point five degrees below horizontal and I was trying to work out what, sorry. i <laughs> I'm
0: the price. I'm the price. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices